Welcome to The Accurate Perspective, a podcast on local politics in Yakima. We take politics to a whole new level. Factual reporting, sources you can trust, and best of all, no BS. Unlike other news organizations, we won't mislead you or manipulate the news to our advantage. It's facts first, and the truth shall set you free. Join our hosts, Matt Brown, Lindsay Wehrmeyer, and Dave Mullen, as we do what we do best. And that's dunk on all our competitors. Welcome to the Accurate Perspective Podcast. I'm Matt, and I'm joined today with my good friend, Hannah Joy. And we are going to do uh, an episode today on uh, a couple different things going on. Uh, next weekend, we actually have state committee happening for the Republican Party. And there's a lot of movement going on. You've probably seen it in the national uh, with a lot of movement going on as well. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's really important for us to talk about what is state committee and then what is going to pro- take place next week. So, Hannah, what, what is taking place next week? So next week will be our reorganizational meeting. This happens every two years. With the exception of the national committee man and the national committee woman, they have a four-year term. So they'll be up in twenty-four. Yeah, so right now it's Caleb, who's our current state chair, and he's going to be, he's up against uh, the same guy who actually went against him last time in 2020 or 2021, uh, which was Keith Swank. Mm -hmm. What do we know about these two guys? Well, we know Caleb's been in there for a little while. Um, He was heavily supported by the conservatives when he first went in. I know some people think that he's swayed more in the middle. We also have to really when you talk about the executive board at state you have to bring in all the little nuances and one of those is we have a national committee man and a national committee woman that are very middle very mainstream very left of of republican and they tend to sway decisions right based on that i know they both publicly have come out and said that they're going to support ronna mcdaniel but is that the will of washington and, and are they willing to go against that? That's a big question we have on, on the tip of our tongues coming up next week. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because, I, I mean, I, I just just read an article uh, yesterday that was talking about so Harmeet, who's running for uh, against Rana at the national level. And uh, the article said 94 percent of Republicans support Harmeet for the next chair. Wow. So I thought I thought that was interesting. What and then a little bit later in the day. Uh, what was that? I said, what poll was that? Um, you I'm not entirely sure. It was a poll I've never heard of before. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> later in the day, though, a more reputable poll, which was um, the Trafalgo group. I don't know how to even Convention say their the name. States. Trafalgo Convention of the States, yeah. Yeah, their poll actually came out. And it was in the 86, 87% um, for Harmeet as well. Uh, so I, I'm kind of frustrated at the fact because I, I start looking at our state committee and we've had, I think last time I was looking at it, it was about 37 counties have switched leadership. Yeah. A least bunch least. of new, yeah, a bunch of new, uh, state committee men and women. And I think that's going to be exciting to see what that, uh, uh, you know, looks like, but mm. these are also folks, in my opinion, that you're probably going to see a lot of hard meat support, right? Yes, so, we are. Across the state, we're seeing that. Right. And so if that's the case, I mean, our national committee man and woman, uh, their sole 
responsibility in my mind is actually to represent yeah. <laughs> the state committee. So next weekend could prove interesting. Um, if they're not going to actually support Harmeet, um, you know, the state committee might, might, it might look a little different next week. And man, we have, we actually have representative Jim Walsh who jumped in. Jim, how are you? Uh, I'm I'm great, man. I'm sorry. I told you I was going to give you a heads up before, but I got out of my three o'clock a little early and just came over. Hey, well, I'm I'm glad you're here. We were just talking about WSRP and the fun stuff this next weekend, the following weekend um, happening. But while we have you here, what what is uh, what's going on in the legislature? <laughs> well, a lot. Um, probably of greatest interest uh, on pure policy coming fastest are some of the anti-gun bills. Uh, there are going to be hearings on Tuesday of next week. That is the 17th January. Um, on if there are, if there are six bad anti-gun bills in the house in Olympia, probably four of them are going to have hearings on Tuesday. Uh, and these are the, uh, the, uh, bills that would implement uh, a so-called assault weapon ban, uh, create a new uh, permit that people would have to buy, to buy or sell any firearm. The new permit applies not just to, to scary uh, looking rifles, but to any firearm. And that would be a new permit on top of a concealed pistol license. So if you had a CPL already, you would still have to get this new additional permit to buy or sell any firearm. And then uh, uh, this uh, real cockamamie scheme that the, the state attorney general likes to create a new lower standard of uh, liability for uh, firearm makers, manufacturers, or distributors, so that if their guns were used, uh, in a, any kind of nefarious purpose, uh, crime uh, or whatever, uh, violence, the manufacturer or the distributor could be held liable for the use of the product. Uh, and then uh, on a more kind of uh, technical front, uh, a preemption bill, uh, which would mean that uh, basically it's a sweetheart deal to the city of Seattle. It would mean that local jurisdictions, cities, and Matt, you might be interested in this, could set uh, more stringent gun control uh, policy than the state does. So, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and this is a gift primarily for the city of Seattle so they could ban all firearms or do whatever they want. Um, so that, those are the four. Uh, they're all bad. They're all unconstitutional. The recent U.S. Supreme Court opinion in the case out of New York State called Bruin uh, makes it pretty clear what we already suspected, which is that the uh, these state-level anti-gun laws are unconstitutional uh, at the federal level and therefore unconstitutional and null and void. Uh, so it's all kind of an exercise in futility, but the governor and the state attorney general want it. And that starts on Tuesday. Uh, uh, Matt, I can send you some links that you can put up for uh, if people want to chime in online. It's gotten fairly easy to comment about bills in Olympia online. 
uh, you can click through and leave a remark about a bill at the, uh, the state's uh, legislature's website. Uh, I would recommend anybody this, this weekend, this coming weekend, when you've got a, a moment, uh, get on your computer and click through and uh, tell them what you think about these, uh, these gun control bills. How many so of those, with those you can pass? Sorry, Matt. No, you go for it, Hannah. Uh, hey, Hannah. Many, hey, how many of those six do you feel are going to pass? Well, I haven't even gotten to all six of them. I just picked the ones that we're going to have hearings on on Tuesday. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, they are so flagrantly unconstitutional. And this recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Bruen, that's B-R-U-E-N, uh, uh, makes it so clear that they won't hold up. I'm not sure. I mean, if we do our jobs right on the pro-gun rights side, Maybe we can convince the speaker that these are a waste of taxpayer money and a, a sort of futile gesture, and and maybe uh, a couple of them will not pass. Uh, they certainly uh, they are a top priority in policy for the governor and the state attorney general, so they'll be a little uh, angry if they don't pass, but that's okay. Do you, do you see in any of the bills you've already looked at where it would affect directly FFL holders within the state? Well, the FFL holders could could be dragged into that liability uh, scheme. Uh, uh, that's the one that they're the most concerned about, the ones I've heard from so far. Um, yeah. The permit to buy or sell uh, would be challenged, I think, by FFL holders. Uh, it would be a nuisance and a barrier to transactions for them. Uh, they're not, I haven't heard as much from FFL holders uh, about that one. I mean, I've heard from everyone about that one, uh, <laughs> but the one that I've heard particularly from, from dealers about is the liability piece. Uh, they just think that's a, that's a Christmas wish list from, uh, from the state attorney general and he'd just sue everybody. It is. Any good bills, uh, bipartisan support got going on here? Uh, or is it just doom and gloom right now in Olympia? I feel bad for you, Jim. Uh, um, well, it's been pretty rough. So the, the gun bills are kind of the first out of the shoot. The, uh, the governor has also said that housing is a top priority for him. And when he says housing, he means state government funded and in many cases owned and operated housing, rental Ooh. apartments. Um, uh, there is the possibility to get some good, well, not bad, uh, reforms to current housing policy in the state uh, in that discussion. The governor's main uh, desire is this $4 billion slush fund that uh, would require a, uh, a vote of the people to approve uh, so it's going to referendum to the people uh, to set up a, uh, a $4 billion account for f actually building and owning apartment buildings. Um, I suspect if this even gets to the through the legislature, it, it would have to go through the legislature first and then be voted on by the people. If that happens, I suspect the people might vote no uh, on a $4 billion debt-driven slush fund for housing uh, that may or may not ever get built. Uh, that's a bad part of that. 
in the wake of that bad proposal, there are some discussions going on in a fairly bipartisan way to trying to deregulate some of the restrictions on building, on construction, that could result in some some better, you know, some new housing inventory, new uh, new units being built. Uh, for a long time, some of us have been looking for ways to to make it easier for people to build auxiliary dwelling units, grandma apartments in or on property they own. Uh, that conversation the last couple of years got hijacked by some people who used the good in that proposal to try to slip in a lot of bad stuff they wanted. We may be able, and so it hasn't gone anywhere, we may be able this session to get some better reforms to make things like those auxiliary or dwelling units, ADUs, easy to build. And it's a way you can build a little apartment out the back of your house or convert a garage into an apartment or something like that in a way that isn't terribly expensive and, you know, doesn't require difficult permits. And it's a way you can get some housing, you know, some additional units of housing out, out there into the marketplace. Um, so there's some good we can come of that. A, a city, though, even if that passes, a city can still have stricter policies on those ADUs, right? And they can simply say, well, we don't want them in the city or. Right. It, it, well, it, it, that's the version we want that I want and other people. Uh, uh, there are versions that shift a lot of zoning decision-making away from the local uh, cities and counties and to the state level. And this is where mm -hmm. you get this talk of this term you may have heard, middle housing. Middle housing basically means things like duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes or quads. Uh, not quite apartment buildings, but multiple unit structures, not single family homes. And one of the bad bills is a bill that the, the left likes, which would pretty much prohibit building new single family homes around the state and oh. require that areas build uh, or give preference to building uh, the, this middle housing, things like duplexes, triplexes like that. And I, it's not that I'm opposed to building more triplexes and duplexes. Sure, let's do that. But I don't like moving the decision-making on zoning in areas from cities and counties into the state. I think that needs to stay at the city and county level. Absolutely. But the left wants to move as much decision-making as they can away from the local level and up to the state level. Mm -hmm. So rather than having the city of Yakima decide what it wants to do with duplexes, you know, Olympia is just going to tell Yakima what to do. That's interesting because, I mean, I don't even quite understand how they think they're going to fund staffing to even figure that stuff out. I mean, we have such a huge planning department inside our own city that mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, cool. So does that mean we get to have no planning department now? <laughs> no, that's not no, what that no, means. That's, but... not, that's not their plan, of course. <laughs> no. You know, I mean, I, it makes up a, a significant budget piece in the city of Yakima to have that planning going on. Um so I, how, how do they plan on fund, the slush fund and some of these other things? How do they just magically tax us more? Or Oh, yeah. Um, well, th and this gets us to another issue worth discussing is that the, the new energy taxes that have taken effect and are, are really just starting to be felt. This is the cap and trade scheme and the low carbon fuel standard. 
One of the reasons that the left loves these ideas, these two new taxes, is they are not restricted as gas and, and diesel sales taxes are to being spent on transportation issues. In the state of Washington here, we have uh, what's called the 18th Amendment. That's the 18th Amendment to the state constitution, not the federal. And the 18th Amendment to the state constitution says that any uh, tax derived from the sale or use of uh, transportation fuels, so gas and diesel, when, when you pump it at the pump, has to be spent on transportation projects, on, has to be channeled into the transportation budget. Uh, remember, at the state level, three different budgets, operating budget, transportation budget, and capital construction budget. Um, so 18th Amendment says uh, taxes derived from the sale of gas and diesel have to be spent on transportation expenses. So road maintenance, bridge maintenance, this kind of thing. Uh, the left hates that. They've for decades wanted to use the tax revenue from the sale of gas and diesel on other things. Uh, and so they structured the new, these new energy taxes, cap and trade and low carbon fuel so that they don't uh, they don't have to abide by the 18th Amendment. They can be spent on whatever. And uh, and they're doing that. They're spending that money that will be derived from these new energy uh, expenses, uh, taxes, on other things, including some of this housing uh, stuff that the governor wants to do. So who is responsible for keeping these these people in check to make sure that they are actually abiding by laws that are constitutional or or who is responsible for making sure legislators are not voting for these policies that are blatantly unconstitutional? Well, no one. Um, you know, we try to self-regulate. Those of us who've read the state constitution try to remind our colleagues that this bill or that uh, has constitutional problems. Um, and we do it in different ways. I mean, we do it quietly. Uh, in the halls of the Capitol, and we do it loudly in public. Um, uh, the it, it's a it's a reality of contemporary American politics and Washington politics that the political left simply doesn't believe in constitutional restraints. Uh, this stems back to the concept of the Constitution as a living document, which is a has always been a sort of excuse, a priori excuse, a priori rationalization for disregarding the Constitution, to say that it is a living document subject to, to interpretation, uh, really loose interpretation and and constant uh, re-understanding without amendment. Um, so, so they just don't believe in it. And so we, you know, we have some debates and some of the most intense debates are when we remind them that this bill or that is not constitutional, has constitutional problems, and they are boxed into a situation where they have simply have to say, well, it doesn't matter. We don't abide by the Constitution. It seems to so, me that the left does what it wants and the right is always having to um, justify its decisions or justify its whatever self. Sorry, well, Matt. There's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack there. Why is that? The, the American left doesn't operate in a reasoned-based environment. It doesn't, uh, intellectual environment, philosophical environment. It doesn't operate 
on reason. It doesn't operate on thinking. It, it operates on emotion. It operates on feeling. And um, it's motivated by emotion and it, it's driven by emotion. So they uh, they have individual sub, you know, subjective truths. Yes. And they have individual subjective law. So this is the first year back in person for quite a long time. Actually, you're sitting in, I think you're in your office right now, aren't you? You're actually in the building. You, you <laughs> made it past the barricades outside this year. Um, what, what, uh, how, how was that playing out in uh, the bipartisan uh, work that needs to get done? Because I know that was really challenging the last two years, trying to do that through Zoom, and then you're sitting on a computer screen. Right. Is well, it, I, I never was. I mean, after the sort of flap a couple of years ago about getting locked out of the building, uh, the, the speaker and the other leadership here in the governor's office, they actually capitulated pretty quickly. And I was back in my office about 10 days later. Um, and I did another video uh, showing I was back in my office that got about one one hundredth of the views that the video showing I'd been locked out got. Um, but uh, um, so, some of us have been here throughout. Uh, what that whole flap led to was this kind of convoluted formula by which a certain number of legislators were allowed back into their offices and it, into the Capitol and even on the floor. Um, so there were about a dozen of us here from each side throughout, pretty much throughout. Uh, what's different, to your point, Matt, it's true, is almost everyone is back here at the Capitol now. Um, will it make the legislative process more collaborative and bipartisan? It probably will, uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, it's, it's no surprise that my colleagues on the left have been the ones most reticent to come back in person. No surprise there, really. Um, uh, but they kind of, there's kind of a split among them uh, in why they get to that place. Some are genuinely hysterically frightened that they will contract COVID if they go in, out in public and die. Uh, and then some of them look at the virtual legislating as superior to in-person legislating precisely because it's not collaborative and bipartisan. They can kind of cram through. It's easier to cram through. Uh, viciously partisan legislation yeah. when nobody's around anybody and you don't have to look anybody in the eye and you can just press That's a button. Um, so uh, I, I'm not sure how many of my colleagues fit into each of those two categories, but some of them are genuinely hysterically afraid and some of them just have, you prefer the vir virtual world because they can get their way more easily. In any event, uh, more of us are here. Almost all of us are here. There is the ability in this session for some to participate remotely on Zoom. Uh, but the, in these first days of the session, most everybody's been here. Uh, where this applies to real people more is the uh, committee hearings are much more hybrid, uh, much more uh, a combination of live and uh, on Zoom. And uh, that's interesting. That's something that even before the COVID hysteria, 
uh, we were trying to do here in Olympia. We were trying to get it so people could testify to committees uh, online. And uh, so in that way, the, the COVID outbreaks kind of helped that and forced it along. And uh, most committees will be hybrid here. And already in the first days of the session, we've had hearings where uh, we've had a combination of people sitting in the hearing room and a chair testifying and people uh, at home or at their office online also testifying. And that's a good thing. That'll make public participation, at least in the hearing process, a lot easier and, and hopefully more people will be involved. And uh, when we have these hearings on Tuesday morning at 1030, Tuesday morning next week, the 17th at 1030 a.m., um, I hope lots of people are going to show up and let the legislature know that these uh, gun grabbing bills are unconstitutional and immoral and unethical. Yeah, I mean, that leads me to uh, we have another guest on today, Julie, from uh, the conservative ladies of Washington group. Um, Julie, thanks for joining us today. We got a whole crew on today. I see that. That's awesome. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Thanks for inviting me to be on. Yeah, you, I think you know Jim, and this is Hannah Joy. <laughs> I know Jim. <laughs> Julie's Hi. actually testified already this session online. Nice. And I expect we're going to see her down in Olympia in person as well. I'll be down on Tuesday for those gun bills. Okay. All four. I'm signed up to testify on all four of them. Outstanding. <laughs> That's awesome. Julie, I wanted to give you a second to... Uh, one of the things I thought was cool is you actually have created a, a system of emails and different things to actually let people know how to partake in these bills. Um, it's been super helpful for me because I'm, I cannot keep up with the sheer amount of things going on <laughs> over in Olympia. Uh, why don't you talk about a little bit of that? Uh, yeah. So we actually created a legislative action center on our website, and it is a program through Voter Voice. Um, it's a very robust um, software, and um, I've had my eye on it for quite a while, but it is very uh, expensive. <laughs> and um, we are pretty much a volunteer organization um, funded basically by, the, um, by our members. Um, and uh, so mid-December, I kind of took a leap of faith and decided to invest in this program and uh, and then make our organization a 501c4 nonprofit. Um, the day after I made this decision, crisis hit my family, <laughs> and I was uh, pretty much um, for the for the last two weeks of the year um, dealing with that and unable to kind of get my game plan together to launch this in January. Um, so. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm believing that that God will bring the members and the donors. And we're already seeing um, just in the last five days, it's been amazing to see what's happened over the session. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm connected with people like Jim um, and William Kirk of Washington Gun Law. And we're we're just seeing massive people hitting this website and they can go to this website and the software draws from the state legislative site but it's much more easier to use and interactive for people. Uh, and we can add our own two cents about things. So I can pull up a bill like Jim's uh, 1098, 1090, which is the school. Did I get it? Yes. So I can pull up that on my website and I can create my own um, information about it, my own graphics. I could put a video on about it. 
uh, and people can learn a lot more. And then I can tell them where I want them to go to take action. Um, so it's really amazing. And I think people are, um, actually, I know, I know people are already using these tools and appreciating being able to participate in the pro in the process because our Washington legislative site is not easy to use. Um, no. It's not intuitive at all. And it's very clunky. Um, so uh, I, I, I have so, felt Julie called to this role and uh, it seems crazy. And I've never been involved in politics or government until about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, so I'm just kind of figuring it out and learning and just like, feel like I'm doing what God's telling me I'm supposed to do. <laughs> I'm doing so a great job. I it's conservativeladiesofwa.com. Yeah, I actually send it out to, uh, I'm, I'm the county chair here in Yakima and for the Republican Party. And and all my PCOs were trying to figure out how they could partake in session. And I was like, oh boy, let me try to figure out how to, and then, and then your site came across my email and I was like, oh, this is so much easier. Great. <laughs> and you guys could just go here. And, and so yep. send out instructions to get people going on that. And folks have been loving it. They've been, it's been able to keep track of stuff as it's happening. And obviously having great representatives like Jim Walsh is, it makes it easier as well, but sometimes it's a little bit harder to find that on Facebook <laughs> and figure out which, which bill. I feel like sometimes too, legislators like to um, put about 15 different bills all at one time to see how many uh, Jim can actually stop at one time. So uh, <laughs> chainsaws. That's what it feels like with all these gun bills right now. And then one of the gals on my team just a couple hours ago was sending me all these education bills that have he bad education bills that have hearings next week too. And it's just like whack-a-mole you know, trying to, you know, it's, it's, I, and I think it's intentional, right? They're like, let's just throw all these bills at them and they can't keep up and then we'll wear them out and they'll get tired of fighting. It's called flooding the zone. Uh, it's both a military and a political term. Uh, and, and we try to do it back at them. I mean, we flood the zone too, that the school choice bill that, that Julie mentioned was part of a group of bills that I've done that are education reform related. And, um, one of the words I've had recently is that committee, the education committee, is willing to hear. They're not willing to hear the, the school choice bill, at least not yet, but they are willing to hear the uh, the school resource officer, that is the law enforcement presence at K-12 schools. They're willing to hear that bill, uh, which is another K-12 education reform bill, uh, and I think would be very good for school safety and uh, and also for letting kids know that law enforcement is are good people, you know, not have law enforcement be alien, hostile presence in their lives, but a friendly, good presence in their lives. Um, that bill may get a hearing. So, you know, you, you flood the zone with a number of bills that may be uh, more, you know, that are, that are as difficult to the left as some of their bills are to the conservative side. And, uh, and they, uh, they will end up, uh, sometimes you can bargain at least one or two of them getting a hearing and, and sometimes a, a vote through the committee. The the school resource officer bill, Jim, remind me, what does it fund resource officers in school districts or what, what does that entail? It does. It, it draws from the uh, state's operating budget, the main budget, uh, 
frankly, it would probably end up drawing some of that money from the cap and trade scheme and the low carbon fuel scheme. Uh, but the, the, the operating budget is a big pot of money, pot of taxpayer dollars. And it's swirled around and uh, it, it's hard to track exactly which inputs of dollars end up funding precisely which activities because it's such a big barrel. But um, but that but the, the the school resource officer plan, which would require and fund one officer at each campus in the K twelve system, uh, would draw money would be funded out of the the operating budget. Uh, so uh, it is funded. Uh, the objection the left makes two objections to it. One is budget-based, you know, whenever they see a policy they don't like, they become fiscal hawks. Well, this costs too much. Well, you know, it's a drop in the bucket compared to some of the other, you know, harebrained schemes that are funded. So, but but then uh, on a more serious level, they try to attack it at a policy point. And, and the left's complaint about school resource officers is, oh, well, they don't prevent uh, these violent crimes, which is not true. They usually do prevent them or discourage them uh, uh, from happening. And, and if they do happen, they respond. But the left will always bring up the handful of cases where there's trouble. And lately there was this shooting down in Uvalde, Texas, where some school resource officers were very slow to respond. They didn't respond appropriately. Um, uh, but the left will bring that up immediately, uh, ignoring the 89 other examples where school resource officers have either interrupted or prevented uh, crime from happening in schools. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been an interesting one because the, I mean, I know from at least the city's perspective, we've had to figure out how to fund our school resource officers in Yakima. And it's been kind of a, um, loved like a, a split partnership with the school district and and uh the city right they've we've we've 50 50 their uh their salary um and it and it's worked kind of it, it you know it depends on who you kind of have in there at the school board level and who you kind of have in there at the city level whether we keep that funding or not so i i, I do appreciate that because um i think that's like right now we have two high schools in our town where I think we only have one resource officer for the both two high schools. Um, and, and that's really because of funding and also trying think, to find the right people, <laughs> the officers think, to begin with. You would think that with two weeks ago, having every superintendent in the state of Washington sent a bomb threat that there's a live bomb in their school would be enough to make them want a, an officer within the school system. It doesn't make any sense to me why you would want less and not more with these threats coming in. Well, I mean, some of it is is just pure politics. There are some legislators who believe that law enforcement is inherently racist and inherently unjust, and they don't want law enforcement anywhere. They don't want cities to have police departments. They don't want uh, schools to have school resource officers. They want to de literally defund the police. Uh, now, they are a, a minority even within their caucus, but they are loud and, and uh, aggressive. Um, the situation that Matt describes where the city and the school district are splitting the cost of, of the officer at the campus uh, is very standard. That's how most school resource officers are funded. 
some version of that, a cost sharing between a city or a county and the school districts. Um, but uh, too many districts don't do it at all. Uh, uh, the current breakdown, as we understand it, is about a third, one third of school districts have some form of school resource officer. Um, but the number may be even lower than that. Uh, it's not a, a statistic that uh, the education bureaucrats like to track, so they don't ask very well. Um, uh, but they track everything. <laughs> so what's so the I have what a is question. What everything is. We're all going to talk at the same time. Go ahead, Julie. I have a question about this, Jim. I um, I live in the North Shore School District, uh, which mm. is one of the larger school districts in the state up in Snohomish. Well, Snohomish and King County, they have uh, schools in both counties. Um, and I know for a fact that they have the funding for the SRO at every high school, but I think only one high school still actually has an SRO on staff. So if they're not hiring that position, they claim they can't find anybody. I have information that says otherwise. Um, so they're choosing not to fill this. So what do they do with that, that funding that's not being utilized? Where does that go? Well, I mean, it usually sits unspent in an account. Um, you know, the bill that I drafted would be uh, basically structured as a user to lose it. So you can sit on the money for a little while, but if you didn't spend it, you will, you would either have to give it back, or really, what it is is you wouldn't get it from the from the state. Um, this gets to the politics end of SROs. It isn't always money. The left will claim that the reason there aren't more is money, but uh, as in the situation you're describing, it sounds like that is a more of a political decision being made by the school board and not hiring, or, or maybe it's by the superintendent. As uh, many of us know, uh, school boards don't often enough act independently of their superintendents. Too many school boards are just a rubber stamp yes. for the district superintendent. So sometimes it's just one person pushing a political agenda, but other times it is the school board. The school board will have a, a majority of, of board members who believe X, Y, or Z, and they enforce it in their, in their district. Or you get like our districts where we have a couple of them have actually just hired private security. <laughs> I have a question. Like, I don't know how that's cheaper or better, but. Uh... On these people, Jim, that you talk about just would rather have no law enforcement. Um, what is their recommended alternative? What do they foresee as replacing law enforcement to keep people safe? Well, I mean, we make jokes about it, but it's it comes the jokes come from a real place. Um, they believe that there should be uh, basically mental health caseworkers, social workers, who will help people in crisis, the term they like to use, uh, and that these uh, caseworkers, the social workers, will basically walk people down from the edge of violent behavior by talking to them. And um, talk to anyone with experience in law enforcement and see what their opinion of that is. Um, it is uh, naive, to say the least, and reckless, to say the more. Yeah. Yeah. 
I know that that's actually, I was, I think it was Seattle actually is talking about trying to remove more and more of their police department, even though they mm-hmm. stopped the defunding. And then now, now they're, now they're back at it again um, after this, uh, after a year hiatus, basically. Um, it's interesting. The, the, the other one I was going to ask you about, Jim, uh, homeless. So there's, uh, there was one crazy bill that I saw um, that was talking about giving homeless uh, or giving people, I guess, I don't even know if it's necessarily just all homeless, but uh, a universal income of right. some kind. Um, tell me that is not going anywhere. Well, I don't think, I mean, you never know. I don't think it is. I think you're talking, I, think, I believe the number is uh, House Bill 1045 for that one. Um, I, another harebrained scheme. Uh, the left, and, and to be honest, a few people uh, of more conservative stripe have been have been sort of fascinated for a while by this notion of a uniform, uh, I'm sorry, universal basic income, UBI, you heard it referred to as. Um, so universal basic income is a, uh, basically a welfare payment for everybody or nearly everybody. Um, the one, this 1045 bill, House Bill 1045, uh, is triggered. It's not for everybody all the time. It's triggered by what they, this other buzzword term they like that we're hearing a lot now by a mass disabling event. So if there is a mass disabling event, then a universal basic income would kick in. And uh, people, I mean, obviously, the model they're looking at is uh, the emergency, government declared emergency over COVID. Uh, everyone would get a check every two weeks or so, uh, or an electronic payment, probably. Um, uh, and uh, this is, uh, I want to be as charitable as I can be. This is a again, sort of a naive, well-meaning, but kind of goofy idea that government can be a, a perpetual motion machine and just give away lots of money. Uh, and and it, it, it is shocking sometimes to, to learn how naive and uninformed my colleagues here in the legislature are about basic economics. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not joking, Matt. They they generally don't understand that the state government derives its revenues from taxes on the people. They that's don't so get basic. that. I, I, that's but, just so basic. I can't imagine that there would be literal legislators who don't understand that most basic principle. They don't. I don't know what to say. They think the money starts in the budget and and we encourage this ignorance by having what's called a base budget system in the state of Washington. Now, this applies pretty much to all three budgets operating transportation and capital. It applies the least to the capital budget, but base budgeting and this gets to the stuff you hear in you know urban legends about the federal government. Base budgeting is where you start your budget process with last term's budget. Uh, in D.C., they use an annual budget cycle. Here in Olympia for the state, we use a, a biannual. We have a two-year budget cycle. So every new two-year budget cycle starts with the previous two-year budget cycle. And all that we debate is how much more we're going to add to each department of the government. More. We don't question the last year's allocation, 
All we do is debate the new stuff. And uh, what we need to do, both here in Olympia and back in D.C., is have what's called a zero-based budget. And that means every two years, each of the departments of the state, each bureaucratic agency, has to start from zero. When they ask for money, they have to build up from zero and justify every project, every sub-agency, every person that they hire. Um, but we don't do that currently. And so I guess you could say, Hannah, that legislators are, it's understandable they're ignorant about economics because they never understand that you build budgets from the start every, every budget cycle. You should. You know, they think that, you know, for instance, the governor's current proposal that we're debating now for the next two years in the operating budget, it's $70 billion. Uh, the last one, two years before, was about $63 billion approximately. So he increased it by about 10%. And there are legislators here who just think the $63 billion is magic money, that that money is simply in the state. And you say, well, where do you think this money comes from? Well, it comes from, you know, places. <laughs> Is the base budget system, is that within the Washington State Constitution? Where does this, where does this come from? No, the, the Constitution allows the legislature to build its budgets on any any standard that it, the legislature chooses. It says the legislature is responsible for budgeting, mm -hmm. but it doesn't say what form of budget we are, we need to use. And it Did would you take know, Jim, there's, there's green trees everywhere. You know, <laughs> money just grows on it in Washington. Right. Didn't you so, know, Matt? Except in Yakima, we don't have very many green trees. That's right. Right, right. <laughs> what was that, Anna? I said they're all in my county, those, <laughs> yeah. those money-growing trees that won't be logged. <laughs> um, well, that's why I asked that question, because I'm thinking about universal basic income, and I'm like, so <laughs> you, you only have money when you tax revenue or <laughs> from someone, Right. If they've brought in a business, you don't have money just poof out of the air like the federal government seems to be doing right now. One point seven trillion. Uh, you know, well, I know but that. At, least, at least the feds can print money here, <laughs> in, here in Washington. We can't even print money and they think it's magic. Uh, I, I suppose that if you really hold them hard to it, some of these colleagues of mine will say, well, the rich, we get the money from the rich. Um and, you know, they're, they're like spoiled kids. I mean, the reason we've done well kind of staggering through a, a weak governor and, and bad legislation for a decade or more is we've been blessed. I mean, we had, well, I mean, you can go all the way to the beginning of the state. I mean, we've had Boeing. We've had, well, before Boeing, Warehouser. We've had Warehouser to Boeing to Microsoft to Amazon. We've had a, a chain every 20 or 25 years of big corporate entities, engines of economic growth that have kind of kept us afloat despite our incompetence, bad management and goofy ideas. My, my fear, and I've said this before with you, Matt, is we're yeah, screwing it up so badly here. The next link in that chain, the next Amazon, the next Microsoft is not here isn't likely to be here. The next one is going to be in Texas or Florida, and they're going to get all those resources, and we're going to end up here uh, down and out. 
Or even in just, North Dakota, was it Christy Nome who just said that she's trying to make a deal with a large, large corporation in Canada who wants to move here uh, because things are so bad up there. They are right across yeah. the board. Washington would have been a great option, but they know that we're not good for it either. No. no. So, so school choice bill, Jim. People have been wanting this school choice, at least here in Yakima. A lot of folks have been really pumped. We saw your bill. Can you go into details of what it kind of, how, what does it look like? Is it like the Arizona type of bill that they did down there, or is it a mixture? Uh, flavor on it. How does it look? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a first cousin to the Arizona plan. Um, uh, it's the, the bill number is 1093. Uh, uh, we, we kind of, that wasn't clear earlier. It's 1093. Uh, it is based on uh, an earlier bill I, I filed two years ago that did not get a floor vote. Um, it's really a first step to something as big and ambitious as the Arizona school choice uh, plan. Uh, it is a, uh, we don't use the term voucher for various reasons here, but it is a, we call it a scholarship that looks a lot like a voucher. Uh, it is a first come first serve. Uh, so you don't have to qualify for participation in the program by any, uh, income metric or other metric first come first serve. Um, and it is, uh, $12,000 a year. It's a scholarship worth $12,000 a year. The uh, a recipient child would receive that for the rest of the time that that child is in the K-12 system here, so up to 12th grade. Um, and it uh, allows the child to carry the 12000 with him or her, and the family can send that child to uh, another public school than the one where they are by geography uh, enrolled, uh, or they can just go to a private school, or they can use it to help defer the costs of homeschooling. Uh, so the, the world is their oyster. They can send their child anywhere they want. Uh, that will take $12,000 as, uh, as a tuition fee. Um, the average allocation to a school district for a child in the state is about $18,000. So all we're taking out is 12 of that 18, and the school district gets to keep the remainder. It varies some by district, but approximately $6,000. Uh, and so the, for the school district, if a child takes one of these scholarships and goes somewhere else, uh, the, the district actually has a little bit more money per student for its remaining students than it had. Um, That's actually a better deal then, isn't it? Because if you homeschool currently in the state of Washington, they get none of it. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. Now, I have to tell you, Hannah, well, the, the homeschool community is sort of mixed on this whole idea. Yes. Um, I, uh, they're, they're not crazy about it or not universally in favor of it. Uh, they don't. Many homeschoolers don't want any state involvement at all in homeschooling. And they don't like the idea of using this state scholarship to defer, uh, defray, uh, you know, homeschooling costs, but curriculum right. costs or whatever they're doing. Uh, so, but, but it, this is not a mandatory program. You don't right. have to participate in it. So, uh, for the time being, uh, um, you know, they wouldn't, if you don't want it to touch your homeschooling setup, you, it doesn't touch your homeschooling setup. Right. Um, now it would, it, it doesn't apply to every student in the system. Mm -hmm. 
only about 10%, maybe a little more, maybe 14% of the students could participate in the program is structured, but it's designed to scale up over time. And so we put in place the mechanism for doing this and the grand plan to make it more like the Arizona model is it would eventually grow to be available to all students. Now, is there an additional bill or included in this bill a way to remove the cap on the amount of charter schools that are allowed here in the state of Washington? And I believe charter schools are funded by the lottery. Is that correct here in Washington? Not directly, not anymore. No, it's more convoluted than that. Um, uh, no, this bill does not include uh, lifting the, the the cap on the number of charter schools. Uh, so to unpack a little bit of Hannah's question, uh, in this state, we do allow charter schools, that is schools that are publicly funded, but are operated differently, uh, are operated without uh, the involvement of certain uh, state superintendent programs and oversights, are able to set up their own curricula, are able to do things more independently. So they are meant as a kind of hybrid of mm -hmm. a public and private school. Uh, from the beginning, certain of my colleagues on the left have hated the idea of charter schools and opposed the implementation of this program at every turn. Um, we, we allowed a certain number of charter schools to be established and put a time limit within which they could uh, apply for their charters, essentially their permits to operate. And uh, the time ran out before all the spots were given away. And so uh, we were not able, we tried to extend, the, some of this happened before I was here in Olympia. When I got here, the time was running out. We tried to run a bill to extend the time so that all the charters could be used and the left shot that down. So we're in a place now where we only have a handful of charter schools operating in Washington. Uh, they operate and they are funded in a similar way to how regular public school districts are funded. Uh, except they don't have any way to do local uh, enrichment levies. So they get the state portion of a budget, but they don't get the local levy portion of a budget. We've also tried to run bills that would give them some form of funding equivalent to a local levy. Those have been unsuccessful. Um, so uh, um, it would take a different bill, Hannah, to answer your question. It would take a different bill to reopen the time window to try to get the unused charters used. Uh, and at the current, and with the current governor, I don't think we could do that because they would oppose doing it. Wow. But there those charters sit up on the shelf, waiting <laughs> to be used and uh, currently cannot be used. Waiting, just one day, they're going to see their maiden voyage out <laughs> to some well, community. Fling <laughs> them off the shelf and take care of them. Oh my gosh! Hey, so shifting gears a little bit, take out, off the legislature. We're all Republicans right here. There's no hiding that. Uh, we we got a state committee coming up next week. Hannah and I were briefly talking about that a little bit at the start. Uh, we're gonna go back to the go back to it next weekend. We've got uh, an opportunity to elect a chair, a vice chair, um, secretary, a whole new. Uh, basically team at the state level. But then the week after that is also at the national level for um, the RNC. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on what's going to happen next weekend? What are you guys thinking? 
I, I see. I see. It's going to be a beautiful gathering of conservatives in the state of Washington who finally stepped up to take positions within their local parties. And I, I, I have a lot of hope for, for next weekend. And I can't wait to see how it goes. I hope you're right, Hannah. I, uh, <laughs> I am not. Uh, I, I do not consider myself a Republican. I consider myself a conservative. I tend to vote with Republicans and align with Republicans because the real Republican platform is aligns with my values. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, uh, I, you know, in all transparency, I'm not really involved with the, the state GOP um, or the, you know, on a national level either. Um, but I am working hard with conservatives who are involved in the GOP at local levels and on a state level to try to turn it around um, and get it back towards those traditional real Republican values. Mm -hmm. um, and so I actually had a really great conversation with Keith Swank um, a couple days ago and uh, really encouraged by a lot of the things that he had to say and the direction that he'd like to take the party. And, and really just, he talked a lot about a grassroots effort and really leading, um, building from the bottom up instead of, you know, top down as it kind of has been and really giving the the power to the voice of the PCOs, which I think is huge and, and really important. And so that's really encouraging. I hope that he does uh, get the vote and I have endorsed him. Conservative ladies of Washington have endorsed him for the chair position. I think that, um, you know, and, and if you were in a business, if, if you were working for a company as say a project manager and you're, you know, you are leading a team of, of people working under you and, and you couldn't meet your, your goals, you don't get to keep your job. And we've just seen, you know, cycle after cycle that we are losing seats and we did, you know, we lost more seats in Washington state again this year. So I think we have to look at this and I don't know Caleb personally, I'm sure he's a really nice guy. So it's not personal, you know, it's, it's political. <laughs> Um, and I think that, you know, we are in Washington state is in a real dire place and it's a very scary state to live in. And if we have a chance to turn it around, we've got to make some big changes. I couldn't agree more, but I think that the blame shouldn't lie only on the chair. Um, no, no. And, I, and I'm saying that because let's be realistic. Let's look at the House Minority Leader we've had for a very long time. Who has consistently lost seats as well and done nothing to really encourage that, in my opinion. So there should be two who should be in the hot seat right now. Well, and I have caught, I have put him in the hot seat, as you all probably know. And I, I did ask um, after the election for him to step down and for the members of the Republican caucus to ask him to step down. And we didn't get anywhere with that, but at least we said what needed to be said. Yep. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's interesting too, because I'm all, I'm the type of guy that, you know, if I can't get the job done, I don't, I don't like to just sit there and like to think I'm going to magically figure out um, the answer to a solution. It's just going to magically come to me. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So I'll step aside. Right. And I'll let someone else. All right. Let's throw a paint on the wall. See who's, who's going to have be a better artist at the moment. Let's see who wins. Right. Uh, and I'll support you. I'm not going to stand in your way. Um, and I, and I think that's hard in our party uh, as uh, because it seems to be there's a folks that have just stayed there for so long and it's very hard for them to realize like, look, I'm, I, I this is just what I do. And I'm like, well, that's great. 
but we need to win. <laughs> there's, there's a measure of success that you have to do. I'm not saying you got to leave the party. I'm saying you need to move on and we need to be a river and moving. And right now we're not. And, uh, I, and that's what, sorry, go what's ahead. that Hannah? No, it's me. It's just interrupting you. I'll wait for your thought to finish. <laughs> well, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I, I'm, I'm supporting Key Swank, um, for chair. And it's, it's not because I don't like Caleb. I, I do. I think him and his family are an awesome group of folks. Um, it's just for me, it's like, we, we got to change. We got to do something different, something. I don't know what it is. I don't even know if I have the answers to what it is, but we can't keep um, just doing the same thing with the same people and expecting different results. It just doesn't work. Hannah. I was just going to comment that I know that we complain about people being in office for a long time, but the reality is the strategy that we conservatives need to be holding right now is to hold the line as long as possible until we get the numbers to where we don't have to, to fight anymore. It makes no sense to get two conservatives in and then they go, oh, I've, I'm term limiting myself out. And then we just have this rotation of never having a good buildup of conservatives in office that we need. So it's a catch 22, right? Yes, yep. I believe in term limits, but I don't believe you should term limit yourself out because we're lacking in such good, strong backbone conservatives that will stand up. Um, and. As, as far as Caleb and, and Keith go, I have been very, um, I've, I've definitely held Caleb to the fire a couple of times and I, I've been pretty rough on him and his decisions, but the reality is in the four years that I've been at state, he has done a good job in the capacity that he can, right? He has to work with much more than just himself and he has to work against much more than we have ever seen at eboard. Um, I'm not going to endorse either or. I I think Caleb has already said this will be his last year if he gets in and he's moving on. Um, I think if, Caleb, if Keith gets in, he's going to have a huge learning curve that's going to hit him really hard. Do I think he's able to overcome that? Yes, with good enough support, I I still maintain concern for the National Committee man and the National Committee woman as far as how much they will be able to influence his decisions once he's in, if he gets in, but that's nothing that can't be solved with good support on the back end from us. Maybe, maybe we just, maybe we just nominate Jim for a uh, chair. Just throw it, throw it back to Jim. Okay. Go back I will nominate a him. Bit. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that going around. Uh, <laughs> I plan to stay where I am for a, for a while. I hear Good, you. you were the chair at one point, weren't you? I was the vice chair. The vice chair. That's right. I was. I served as vice chair of the state party when Susan Hutchison was the chair, and I ran against her. She beat me to be chair, and then I was uh, vice chair. Gotcha. Can you hold two offices? Can you hold your legislative office and a party chair? It is legal. It is possible. I don't think it's advisable. Um, <laughs> when you're here you're trying to work in a nonpartisan way to get policy done. And uh, the job of the state party chair is explicitly partisan. Um, so it, it would be, uh, it's difficult enough when you're a legislator to run hard in an election cycle and then kind of put those differences aside and work with people and work across the aisle when you're at the Capitol. 
and some people do it very well and some people are you know have a harder time doing it um to to add to that the full-time chair of a state political party while legally and ethically possible it just would be very difficult i think you would end up you would end up if you were good at one you would be less good at the other job so i think if you were to do that you would if someone in my position wanted to be a state party chair which has happened before former legislators have had that job uh you i think you would need to resign the legislature and focus on running the party yeah it would be a lot i i i couldn't imagine i've had someone ask me hey you you should think of that and i'm like dude i got enough going on in my own world <laughs> i do not want to think about that at the moment um i couldn't imagine if i was in the legislature trying to do it at the same time so um so what about national guys we're, we're looking at rnc um we got mm. harmeet and we have it's kind of the same little battle in wsrp that we have at the national level we got a harmeet and we've got and uh, Mike Lindell and then Arana McDaniel. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You know, we mentioned earlier, 86% of Republicans across the country are supporting Harmeet. And yet it doesn't look like she might not have the votes yet. So I'm like, what are your guys thoughts on that? It's interesting to see 800,000 PCOs were elected this last year wow. um, across the country. Are any so of I'm them like, Trump endorsed? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I feel like that would be a tough call for him because I think he's tight with Mike Lindell and I think he also has respect for Harmeet Dillon. Did you know she knits all her own sweaters that she wears? <laughs> I did. She does? And she's yeah. amazing. And she's like, I'm like, how do you have the time to knit all these sweaters? <laughs> and they're very really intricate and detailed and she is a lawyer and she's doing all these other things. She's, I think she would be great. Um, she's she's sitting at a, at a court case That's just sitting there knitting behind yeah. the desk there <laughs> that's probably like her you know all the the kids have their fidgets you know <laughs> i think based on the fidget. polls i think based on the polls that we're seeing and just from being on the ground and talking to people all over washington for me uh but we can also see it nationally the harm does have the people's vote the people are wanting them and and that brings us back to matt you and i were talking before they came on that in here in the state of Washington, the national committee man and woman aren't up for reelection this year. They're not up for reelection until the four year term. And they both have publicly stated their support for Rana. And that's that's a big deal because if they decide to vote against the will of the people that they are representing, that's a big deal. Um, and they need to be held accountable for that if that happens. No, it'll be interesting. We I don't even know if we'll even know. I mean, if they get to there and they do vote, it's a secret ballot. So um, you know, you're you're, you're it's gonna be a an interesting one to see. But um I, I think it's I think it's encouraging to see change. Um it's encouraging to see change in a party. I mean, we just saw at the national level the twenty holdouts that fought for a really good rules mm -hmm. package. Um I think that was really fun to see. And then now watching them all kind of unite around these bills, I'm going, wow, look at this, man. We're actually moving like a machine. We're not just, you know, yelling at each other. Um, yeah, it's I really, pretty cool. I, I, yeah. You know, I really think like, as we get to these things, I think something special is happening. Mm -hmm. um, 
regardless of what the media has to say, um, you know, these extremists are taking over the Republican party or the, you know, whatever, <laughs> right. D despite what they're going to say, I think there is something special. Is it sustainable is, is the question I have. Um, because we've seen these type of movements, um, Ron Paul revolution, we've seen, you know, these things happen over and over and over again. And then it kind of fizzles out. Right. And is, is this movement at that point of fizzling out or is it just getting started? I personally think it's just getting started because stuff's not getting better. So <laughs> it's making more people feel the pain. We don't want it to peak now. I hope it's just getting started. It needs to peak in about 18 months. Right. And I hope that's what happens. That's yeah. legitimate. In 24, man. And then yeah. it just keeps going. Just not, not just stop it. We're just, it's a train. We're just keep going. <laughs> we got to first so. stop leading with conservatives. I mean, the state of Washington has lost so many conservatives the last two years. But um, I recently was doing some some early data sampling with a friend of mine. And in one county, we found four out of 20 conservatives were unregistered to vote in one county. That was rough, rough estimations right off the bat. So I think there is a great, um, a great voter base that we haven't tapped into, that we haven't really pursued because that hasn't been the normal way of going about things in Washington. And if we get enough people who have enough bright ideas and willing to actually run with them and go forward and, and do something against the grain and against the what consultants and campaign managers have done for so long, we are gonna see some really awesome things happen next two years. Do you guys have anything uh, you'd like to say to folks listening at home? Um, I'm going to, I don't want to keep you guys too much longer. We're at the hour mark. Um, Jim, anything on the legislature side to, you know, leave people with? Well, get active, uh, chime in and comment on these bad gun bills, uh, chime in favor of good school reform bills. Uh, we have a couple of decent property rights bills coming up. I mean, we're, they're going to be the big issues, the gun issues, some of this housing stuff, uh, some of the emergency power stuff, some of the police reforms. These are the issues that you'll see in the papers, hear on the radio, see on TV, talk about on social media. Then there are other smaller kind of humble bills, what they call in Olympia, D.C., good little bills. And where we're probably going to get most of the better real reforms are in the good little bills. Uh, focusing on property rights, protecting property rights, focusing on some decent family uh, law reforms, focusing maybe a little bit on some uh, power grid issues. Uh, they're not going to make big headlines, but we'll try to get some small wins there. But we are in a defensive crouch. I mean, the, the left picked up legislative seats at the last election turn, and the governor is running untethered to reality. So we've got a, a lot to fight here. Um, and I, I hope one of the ways we win is getting people used, and, and this is what Julie's doing a lot of, getting people used to participating. People who are commenting on bills are people I believe will end up sending their ballots in uh, at election time. And, um, and we also have to work, frankly, on winning better under the current rules of engagement. Uh, I want to get back to in-person voting in this state, but in order to get there, we have to master the system in front of us. 
which is a mail-in voting system. And that means in this state where vote ballot harvesting, vote harvesting is legal, and where the other side is clearly doing ballot harvesting, we need to do things like ballot harvesting. That means going around your neighborhood, picking up ballots and making sure they get brought to the local uh, auditor's office or to a, to a ballot box. Um, and uh, we have been very, very bad at that. Um, now one of the reasons we were able to turn my district from blue to red is we did a kind of version of ballot harvesting even before we knew that's what it was. Um, and we need to carry that on in a more formal way around the state where we are collecting ballots, making sure conservative ballots are getting cast um, and breaking through the resistance that many people feel to sending their ballots in because they don't trust the system. They think elections are rigged. They think that the counts are crooked. We have to break through that distrust because the only way we get to a place where we've got a voting system we like better is to win by the current system's rules. And uh, that's a hard thing for some people to believe, but we've got to make that message clear. And uh, we know the other side is ballot harvesting. It's not illegal to do that in Washington. So we've got to do it too. And they do it with, they're like a, a gazelle, <laughs> smooth operations. And we, we have to figure that out um, at a state level. Julie, how about you? Um, I would say, you know, one of the things I've been hearing a lot as we're putting out these calls to action, um, you know, overwhelmingly people are are grateful and they're like, thank you for making it so easy. But we also hear from the people who say, what does it matter? They're not going to listen. Kind of that same idea with voting, right? My vote doesn't count. Why should I bother? And what I would say to people is, you know, these calls to action that we're putting out one bill is going to take you 30 seconds. If you have autofill, maybe 10 uh, max. Um, it's super easy and it puts in your position for the legislative record. You are on record as saying, I oppose or support this bill. And if we're not willing to take even that time from our iPhone to make that one little notation of where we stand on something, we don't deserve to have a say. And so this is our opportunity to put the Democrats on notice, put these radical leftists on notice that we are paying attention. We see what they're doing and we're against it. Um, if we're not going to do it now, um, you know, we can continue to get more of the same and go farther and farther to the left. And so I would really encourage people that even though they're, they aren't listening and they don't care and they're going to keep doing what they're doing, but as they see the numbers and we keep being consistent with it, they're going to, you know, there's going to be another election come up and, you know, we're putting them on notice. And with the connection of, you know, being involved in the legislative process, plus the voting and the ballot harvesting, um, we could, that's how we're going to see change. But you have to start somewhere and you have to speak even if nobody's listening. Um, so I would, I would just encourage people that even though you feel discouraged, do it anyway and, you know, get your friends to do it and everybody do it together. And that always makes it a little bit better. Um, another thing I want to um, mention is uh, Jim uh, dropped a bill the other day. I forget the number of it, but it's, uh, you know, protecting children from, you know, 
gender changing surgeries, basically mutilating healthy teenage children. And a lot of people have said to me, well, what does it matter? The Democrats aren't going to hear this. And, you know, it picked up a lot of buzz on Twitter the day that Jim dropped that. I mean, it was all the talk. Senator Marco Leas was, you know, this is not going to, you know, we're going to come at this and we're going to come out stronger in support of trans kids. And it, it'll, it'll not get a hearing. I mean, I can probably bet my life on the fact that it won't even see a hearing, but we are having the conversation and it is bringing awareness to this issue. And, you know, if we can expose the radical left with the things that they're saying, like this is medically necessary. No, it's not. So they're giving us an opportunity to use their words and enlighten other voters. You know, I don't believe that all Democrat voters are radically left. I don't believe that Democrat parents think that children should be able to get these surgeries without parental consent in the state of Washington. So I think there's a lot of good things happening. And one of the things I would also encourage people to do is, you know, we wanted these people to be in office. We wanted to elect Jim Walsh. So we can't just say, thanks for, um, we're glad you won. Now go to Olympia and do work. No, we've got to support them. And so I would really encourage you to, um, you know, support the good bills that they're doing and talk about them, post about them on social media and get the word out that we do have people doing good things in Olympia and they need our support. Yeah, absolutely. That bill is 1214, Julie. One, two, one, four. Uh, Yeah, she's right. I mean, we're pushing. Uh, And some bills are meant to get to the governor's desk and some bills are meant to uh, shift the frame of debate and they never get to the governor's desk. And 1214, while it'd be great if it did get to the governor's desk, really, I expect it to help shape the debate around the issue of these surgeries on minors. And uh, it's not even about what the surgeries are. It's about making life-altering physical surgeries on on children um, that are not medically necessary. They're elective. And uh, I just, I don't think that's a a good thing in public policy. Yeah, absolutely. Hannah, do you got anything left to say? I would want to just say thank you, Jim, for, for all the hard work that you've put in over the years and for all the people that you've inspired that nobody knows about, because you have. You have inspired many in this state to stand up and fight because they see you doing the same. So thank you very much. And Julie, thank you for doing what you do. I understand that it is a very um, unloved position in which you don't get paid, but you pay out, right? But you're doing it for a reason, and that's so important. And and I hope there's many more like you that will step up to the plate. I'm going to leave with I'm going to leave you guys with a quote from Sun Tzu. Yes, you can make fun of that later. But it's first, the whole organization must be one-minded and with one heart. This can only happen if there's a single principle which all members of the organization believe in and live up to. That should be our call for the next two years, is to unite all conservatives and Republicans around one principle that we can get together behind and go forward in Washington. One change leads to two, leads to three. Um, and we've got this. I think people are finally fed up and I think it'll peak in 18 months. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're going to have fun. 
So yes. that's that's what I keep telling people. Sometimes people are like, "Man, politics is such a drag." Oh my <laughs> gosh, it's such a it's a Debbie Downer. You're not hanging whole. around us, Matt. Yeah, it's just such a. I'm like, you know, when they were doing the House vote over and over and over again for the Speaker, I was sitting there like a political nerd, just going, "Oh my <laughs> gosh, this is so freaking awesome! I am having a blast watching this." And I'm watching other people like, "This is so stupid. Look at," and I'm like, "No, you don't understand. This is fun." And I think, I think that's the the thing going forward is like, look, if we can't laugh and play and have fun and enjoy uh, getting to serve our country and getting to getting to fellowship with even folks that don't necessarily agree with us or think like us, um, some of my best discussions happen with people that do not at all think like me. But it is a great uh, discussion point, and and I enjoy it weirdly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, I'm going to wrap up this episode. Um, thank you guys for joining us today. And we will be back uh, again, probably after state committee. Uh, we'll do a little recap of what happened and uh, heading into the national show. And we're going to try to keep checking in with Jim and Chris Corey and some of these other guys that are uh, stumping down there at Olympia, where I'm actually going to go to Olympia uh, for the city uh, actually at the end of this month and then again uh, in February. So I'm going to see if I can't go find Jim somewhere ro roaming around the halls. So um, <laughs> you can see the number, number. 28 <laughs> O'Brien office building. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys again. And Thanks we will so see much. you next time. <laughs>